You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're putting on some kind of pants. What what are those? Uh, these are my jump pants. These give me control while I'm falling. So it's my steering device. You steer with your pants? Yeah, basically, if the more drag I have on my legs, that's why we have the bells on these pants right here, that gives me more drag on my legs. So when I turn my legs, basically that'll give me more control to turn. Well, this gentleman is putting on a... Well, it looks like a space suit. It's actually a jumpsuit because he's going to go up in a plane and then jump out of it. Yeah, this is Mako Igarashi. I'm an instructor out here at Skydive Hollister. Uh, I've got about 8,000 jumps, and it's going to be a fun day to jump today. What did you just attach to your hand? It looks like a gigantic compass or watch. Uh, this is my altimeter. Basically, this tells me how high I am off the ground. It tells me in thousands of feet, and within that range, we... Um, have a red zone, that means I need to really pay attention and I need to figure out when I'm going to land. Listen, if I were thousands of feet off the ground, I'd be paying attention the whole time, not just when I was in the red zone. <laughs> is, is this the parachute? Uh, yeah, basically I'm putting together the parachute assembly right now, um, just inspecting every buckle, every handle on this thing, make sure that everything's going to work when I, when I need to use it. You know what, I think I will not distract you during this moment. Get out of his way while Mako puts on his parachute. He's stepping into it. I'm checking everything that I'm putting on right now. Putting the harness on, making sure all the buckles are securely fastened. Mako, how far are you jumping today? Uh, I believe on the first flight we'll be jumping from 15,000 feet. And uh, that's about a minute of free fall before I have to pull the chute. How fast will you be falling in free fall? I'm not sure. I'm probably going to go for a little bit of speed out there. I'm going to try to break 200 miles an hour. My hopes is to get up to 300 before I have to slow down and, and then pull the chute. You, you slow down to what? Um, basically, when I'm pulling the chute, I try to slow down to about 120 miles an hour. And then um, basically, once I'm under the chute, I'm flying around about maybe 15, 20 miles an hour depending on if I'm doing any tricks. If I do any spins under the parachute, I'll probably get up to about 80 miles an hour under the chute. Why do you do it? Why do you jump out of airplanes? Um, for the, you know, sheer thrill of falling out there, that really can't have anything, you know, to match it. You know, being up in the sky really, you know, changes your perspective of, of what the earth looks like. And just being able to fly around with the birds up there is an experience that most people rarely even dream of.
Well, as Mako goes up in the plane, he's about to have an experience with air that's very different from mine here on the ground where most of us reside. For Mako, the air is a real tangible force and he relies on its properties for what he's about to do. Now I'm glad that there's nothing between Mako and me right now because I can watch him as he goes off and gets into the plane but he's very glad that there's something between him and the ground. I'm Molly Bentley and this is Big Picture Science with the invisible in between. And I'm Seth Shostak here safely ensconced at zero feet altitude but not Mako Igarashi by now, his plane has taken off and is climbing three miles into the sky. The plane is bouncing around a little bit. It's kind of a small plane. It's my favorite part, going through the clouds. This is incredible. Mako now jumps from the plane, and you can't make out what he's saying because his words are drowned out in the massive rush of air that surrounds him as he falls to Earth in his attempt to accelerate to 300 miles per hour. I can't see him yet in the sky, but I know that he's up there somewhere. I'll meet him at the landing site. Nice and flat. I'll see him on the ground. So I'm walking out to the field to meet Mako. All right. You're in one piece, right? Oh, yes. I'm in one piece. Nice, soft landing. I did come in pretty fast. Probably noticed that. Not only did you come in fast, you did a loop-de-loop. Did you mean to do that? Oh, yeah. Did you see that last loop that I did right before I came in? Basically, that, that creates the speed. So the more speed I can get, the more lift I can get. Did you get up to 300 miles an hour? I definitely did. I was going really fast out there. So at first, I was on my belly, just kind of flying around at about 120. And then... When I started speeding up, I went onto my head and I was going head first to the earth and I just had my arms and legs back and just started going for some speed out there. And then to slow yourself down a little bit, you just kind of put your arms and legs out and grab a little bit more air out there and then that's how you slow down. But you're grabbing air. There's nothing to grab. What are you grabbing? (laughs) Well, the air actually is kind of creating a funnel around your body out there. So as it's kind of flowing over your body, the more you grab of the edges of the air, kind of that air tunnel that's you're creating through your body falling to earth, that's creating surface areas for you to grab out there. So when you're on your head, your legs, like your feet, are the last part of the air that you can grab. So if you stick your legs out really wide, then you're going to grab the edges of that funnel of air that's going around your body, and then that's how you can slow yourself down. What were some of the sensations you were going through? What was your body feeling? Right when I was getting set up in the door, it was really interesting just kind of feeling my legs hanging out the door because I was just kind of hanging on the edge. And then once I left the plane, I could feel that falling sensation. You know, it kind of felt like my stomach was in my throat for, you know, about four or five seconds. And then that's when gravity started taking, taking its effect on me and that's what I started really accelerating. I'm still feeling the adrenaline right now, and surprisingly enough, um, just putting my gear away, I'm, I'm realizing that I still have adrenaline just flowing through my body. My hands are a little bit shaky, you know, my knees are a little bit shaky, and basically I'm just kind of getting that land legs back. Okay, so that shaky feeling, that adrenaline feeling, is what would keep most of us from ever doing something like this again, but it has the opposite effect on you. Yeah, that's where I feel the freedom, you know, down here on ground. Uh, I feel the, you know, the restrictions of gravity because I can only, 
do so much down here walking around or whatever but when you're up there in the sky you just have any direction you can go in and there's really nothing else that you can think about except for just kind of being free out there and above the planet. Mako Igarashi is a flight instructor at Skydiver Hollister in Hollister, California. His feats of flight are clearly impressive. Uh, the physics is even more so, and it gets at the nature of air itself, says Southeastern Louisiana University physics professor Rhett Allain. Well, the first thing is that you have a period of acceleration. There's nothing supporting you, so you're going you're gonna to fall. Gravity pulls you down, and you start going faster. And that doesn't last too long because the faster you go, you start pushing against the air. And uh, that is a force pushing in the opposite direction of gravity. Eventually, you'll reach some constant speed. So, but in that first short period, your body doesn't really feel like it normally does because there's nothing pushing it together. Like the floor usually pushes up on you, and, and you feel that little short sensation of weightlessness. And, and then what happens is you open up the chute, and now suddenly everything changes. Well, when you open the parachute, you really increase your effective surface area, and that greatly increases the amount air pushes up. So now the, there's a greater force pushing up, and so you slow down. And then you, you reach another constant speed. Uh, in the simplest case, really it's more complicated because modern parachutes are, are actually little wings, so you actually become a little tiny airplane. Okay, and then eventually you hit the ground at some tolerable speed that doesn't break all the bones in your legs. Right. Well, and, and in fact, that's the nice thing about the modern parachutes is that you can actually land like an airplane and, and kind of pull up as you come down. You're, you have a forward speed, too, so it, it's much safer than those round uh, circular parachutes you see from World War II and things like that. When you're doing this skydiving, Rhett, uh, what do you hear? Do you hear anything or is it completely quiet? No, you. it's it's just like, I mean, imagine driving your car at 120 miles per hour, which you should never do, and then sticking your head out the window. That's exactly the same thing. You just hear the, the wind pushing past your ears. It makes a nice, uh, loud noise, and that's it's just that's what you hear. You have to be an authentic thrill-seeker to jump out of a plane, surely. But it takes a daredevil to attempt Felix Baumgartner's stunt. The Austrian skydiver has plans to complete the highest dive on record this fall. By leaping from a height of not 15,000 feet, as Mako has done, but a factor of 10 times higher, 120,000 feet, 23 miles up. Well, Rhett, as you know, there's going to be an attempt to set a world record... In the news, I read that a gentleman by the name of Felix Baumgartner is planning to jump, not from, uh, you know, 10,000 feet or something that a small aircraft could reach, but from 23 miles. Now, that's clearly a lot higher than, you know, the kind of skydiving that most skydivers undertake. Uh, what are the differences going to be jumping from that kind of an altitude? Uh, the first is how do you get there? You really can't get a plane to fly that high because the major thing that happens as you get higher is the density of the air gets a lot lower. So at 120,000 feet, the density is such that it's pretty difficult to fly. You couldn't fly a conventional plane. Um, and really the best way to get up there is with a, a balloon, a, like a weather balloon. Is that what uh, this guy Baumgartner is going to do? Is he going up in a balloon? Yes, in a balloon. My goodness. All right. So he, he, he goes up in this balloon. He said, what, what do you see from 120,000 feet? I mean, can you see the curvature of the earth? You can see your house from here. 
we can see your house from here. No, I don't know. I mean, you can see the curvature of the Earth for sure. Uh, you can see uh, it, the sky gets much darker. You know, we see the sky is blue because we're looking through so much air. But at that high up, there's not that much as much air above you. So you can you can see a much darker sky. It's almost, you know, space-like. It, it, it is very similar to space. It's not space. Yes. It's very similar to space. But but you can't breathe, presumably. No, you cannot breathe. You have to wear a spacesuit. And what's the temperature? I don't know the temperature off the top of my head. I know it's very, very cold. So you have to, you have a, a suit that, that does two things. It increases the, the pressure inside the suit and it regulates your temperature so that you can survive. It, can, can you envision what it's like psychologically to get to the edge of space here, you know, 23 miles up and climb out of this balloon gondola or whatever it is and just jump toward the earth. I mean, how can anybody do that? It, it's, I mean, if you see some of the pictures from he's done a 90,000 foot jump, they are stunning pictures of him standing on the edge of this little capsule. And, and all you see is this giant curved earth in front of you and dark sky and, He's wearing a spacesuit, it, and on top of that, he has to ride up in this capsule and take a. It takes at least an hour to get up there, and uh, he's all by himself. He has communications, but you know, just the trip up isn't trivial. Yeah, this sounds like something that I probably won't plan for myself this weekend. Uh, what What are the biggest dangers for somebody doing this? I mean, he has the suit, so he has oxygen. He has protection against the cold. All he has to do is you know wait long enough for his chute to open, and then land on the ground and talk to the reporters. Well, I think the the first I I think the first major difficulty is the transfer from the life support system of the capsule to the life support system of the of the spacesuit. And they've actually practiced that with the capsule and the and Felix in the spacesuit in a in a large essentially vacuum chamber. They pump down the air so it's really low so they can practice that. But that's not a trivial operation. You know, you're on you're surviving up there and you don't have any backups, so you know, you got to make sure that goes that goes well. That on the way down, um, anything could happen that would cause him to you know lose control and maybe uh, you know spin the wrong way, such that the parachute won't open properly or things like that. So it, it's it's dangerous both up and down. Can I ask? Is there any potential payoff for this kind of a thing? I mean, is there any future practical benefit from learning about what happens when you jump out of a a vehicle from 23 miles up? Well, it, it, it's it's exploration. And in that case, you know, we don't always know what we're going to find uh, or, or what value it's going to have. So really, we do a lot of these things because we're human, and humans just like to, to push things as far as they can. I mean, there will be practical applications from this. They had to build their own spacesuit, um, you know, with the, the capsule and stuff like that. The technology in there is very detailed, so that that is a benefit. But I think the first answer is, you know, we're not doing this. I'm not doing it either, but they're not doing this for the benefit. They, they do this because, you know, humans strive to do these kinds of things. This is what makes us human. Let's consider uh, skydiving on other kinds of worlds. I mean, like on the moon where there's no atmosphere, really. What's the difference? Well, it's not skydiving if there's no sky. So you're just going to you get out uh, the gravitational uh, forces on the moon since the moon is a smaller mass is going to be smaller and so but you'll speed up the whole time as you fall towards that towards the surface of the moon you'll just keep on speeding up there's no air pushing against you to slow you down and to reach that constant speed you just speed up 
Yeah, so you you could you could land with almost a well, I mean, a very high velocity. I mean, you would just be a grease spot on on the moon. You'd make another crater. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, maybe they'd name it after you. I mean, that would... <laughs> okay. Well, Rhett, you truly experience our atmosphere. I think most people walk through life and walk through the rooms and <laughs> great outdoors of their life experiences without really being terribly aware of the fact that they're surrounded by this this ocean of stuff that we call our atmosphere. But but you get to experience it firsthand. Yeah, and, and really everyone can if they just pay attention. I mean, stick your hand out of a moving car window and you can feel it being pushed back. It's, it's there and it really has some effects on a lot of things. Well, finally, Rhett, Felix Baumgartner, he's going to go up 23,000 feet, climb out of the conveyance that brought him up to that enormous altitude and jump toward the ground. Is this something you'd ever want to do? If I had the opportunity, I don't know. I, I think I'm, my wife probably would say no, but I'd probably say yes. <laughs> Rhett Elaine, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Rhett Elaine does his blue sky thinking as a physics professor at Southeastern Louisiana University and as a blogger for Wired.com. Later in the show, the nature of space, interstellar space. But first, losing my breath at 14,000 feet and what you'll find in a cubic foot of air. It's the invisible in-between on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. You can't see it, but your ears can hear the invisible in-between on Big Picture Science. We're talking about air. That's right, a bunch of hot air about air and why it's not a whole lot of nothing. Now, I've never been skydiving. Have you, Seth? Not that I can recall, no. (laughs) And I can't imagine jumping out of a plane. Just looking at a photograph of the ground from an open door of an airplane makes me feel queasy. But I did have an experience that taught me just how important our atmosphere is. Seth and I were on a trip to Hawaii. We were doing a show on the astronomy there. You remember, Seth? I certainly do. Right. We were going up the mountain of Mauna Kea. Right, 14,000 feet nearly, the highest point on the Big Island. And we acclimated at 9,000 feet, which is what all visitors do. And then we continued up to the top of the mountain, driven by our host, who at the time was working on the 30-meter telescope project, Charles Blue. We are really right now climbing up a, a dirt road that has a lot of bumps in it, but this is the where you have to go if you want to get up to the observatories at the summit of Mauna Kea. We're in four-wheel drive, I believe. You have to have four-wheel drive. They won't let you go uh, past the mid-level facility without it. <laughs> well, we're going pretty pretty high. Hey, uh, Charles, will there be oxygen tanks at the uh, at the peak just in case? Yeah, they do have some oxygen up there just in case you're feeling a little lightheaded and need it, but uh, most folks do pretty well. Well, I wasn't one of those folks. When we got up to the top of Mauna Kea, the view of Hawaii from 14,000 feet was stupendous. 
But stupor best describes how I felt. I really didn't feel well. And Seth, you were okay. Well, I'm not sure I was okay. A little lightheaded. Well, it's not so much that I was lightheaded, although I was that. Everything was dreamlike. I felt very unstable. I felt panicky, and I had a slight disorientation. So uh, one of the researchers connected me up to an oxygen tank and took me back down that same bumpy road that we had come up with Charles. You know, I felt a little sheepish because I consider myself in good shape physically, and the researcher said that everyone's physiology reacts a little differently to the high elevation. And Seth, you stayed up there and actually did an interview. I did, a couple, actually, (laughs) as I recall, but who knows what my recollection is like. So so you were fine. Um, I was not fine. I felt better when I came down, and it was certainly a memorable experience of just how important our air is, or lack of it. Something that writer William Bryant Logan has thought about for his book on the subject. Well, Molly, when you were going higher and higher, you were reaching areas where there was less oxygen in each breath you were taking, and the less oxygen there is, the more likely you are to experience some kind of distress, particularly if you're not used to the altitude. Uh, I experienced the same thing in the Sierra Nevada as a kid quite a lot. Air, the Restless Shaper of the World, is William Bryant Logan's book, and he points out that air is stuff. It's real. It's tangible. It's got molecules in it, chemicals, if you will, chemicals, some of which we depend on, of course. I just happen to have a can of air here, Molly. Is that Northern California air? It is Northern California. I'll send it to my friends in Los Angeles because they could use some of our good air here. But it's got a list of ingredients on the back, so I'll just read to you what's inside. 70% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, so that's nine-tenths of what's in the can. And then there's a rather smaller amount than you might imagine of carbon dioxide, a whole bunch of noble gases here, argon, neon, krypton, helium, some hydrogen, water vapor, of course, you see the clouds, and some aerosols. Well, those are the components of air, but Bill, I'll still ask you, what is air? Oh, my goodness. Well, we couldn't live without it for a moment, not only because we breathe it, but why do we breathe it? I mean, if you look at what we're made out of, it's not too far off to say that we're made out of thin air because all flesh is made out of the hydrocarbons that are created in photosynthesis by the combination of carbon dioxide and water, uh, both of which are resident in the air, and through the nitrogen, which is extracted and made into other usable compounds for us by a certain very small number of bacteria, uh, we end up uh, being able to have behavior since nitrogen is the central part of most of our proteins, which allow us to behave as complex organisms. So uh, it's crucial to, to our life and to our very existence. And in probability, the air that we have on this planet, we would not have uh, if there were no living things on it because there would be no free oxygen. Reading your book, it is a reminder or it's an introduction to just how powerful air is and how much we depend on it. And it's actually wild. As you write, air can't be owned, it can't be controlled, it can't be contained. It really is a force of nature. Yeah, it really, that's what, you know, we always talk about global nowadays, but the one thing that truly is global is the air. And not only is it global, it it works itself into the soils, it works itself into the sea, and it goes all the way up 200, 300,000 feet high, and in fact, it never really ends. It just keeps going, getting thinner and thinner and thinner until you get to places where maybe you meet a molecule once every week. Well, don't you say that you can go up halfway between the Earth and the Moon, and you could still find one molecule of air. Yeah, one molecule will pass every few days or a week. Okay, so that's up, but if we look down, how far down does air reach? You know, one way to figure that out is to see where trees put roots, because roots can't live without oxygen. 
So if you find a tree's root five or six feet down, you know that there's oxygen there. And so in places where the soils are very tight, a lot of the roots will be near the surface. But in places like Florida, I have a friend who's a tree scientist in Florida, and he says that he regularly has cave guys, spelunkers or cave climbers, come and present him with roots that they've found in limestone caves 60 or 70 feet underground. Bill, you were explaining what is in air and oxygen and nitrogen or some of what's in air, but but for anyone who's lived in a city, we know that there's a lot more that can be in air. And I wonder if you could give me an idea of what you might find in an average cubic foot of city air in any city that you choose, and what's in a cubic foot of country air, just to give us an idea of the the different contents of air. Mm, that's a good question. And it's changed a lot over time. Um, before the industrial era, it wouldn't have been that different. It used to be said that people will often test the difference between air over water and air over land. In the old days, before industry, air over water was about half as full of invisible contents as air over land. Now the difference is an order of magnitude. So if you have a 1,000 particles over the sea, you used to have 2,000 over the land in a given area. If you had a 1,000 particles in the sea now, it's 10,000 at least over land. So we put a whole lot of stuff into the atmosphere. What's that stuff? Um, some of it is things that come from our exhaust pipes, from our agriculture, a lot of both organic and inorganic materials. In the city, I've actually, by the way, with I have a little machine I call a spore sucker with which I take samples out of the air, and I've done it on the Brooklyn Bridge, for example, and discovered quite a lot of black carbon, and some of that is probably coming out of people's tailpipes. Some of it may be stuff coming right off their tires, little particles coming off their tires. But I've also caught things, a lot of fat, New York City air seems to be very rich in fat drops. Fat. Yeah. And I was asking a, a friend of mine who's a climate scientist what that meant. And he said, I think it's from the food carts in the restaurants. <laughs> it's a prominent aerosol in, in New York City air. So we're breathing when we're in New York a little bit of hot dog grease every now I'm and then? A, I'm afraid we are. We, you know, they're much fancier <laughs> food carts. So I suppose it depends upon where you are, what you're breathing. Donuts, perhaps. Yeah, donuts would be good. Oh, but, but continue, you were saying... Oh, so, the, so there's uh, there are sulfates and nitrates. Some things are particles to start with, like tiny particles of soil or soil organic matter or the living contents of the air, the fungal spores. They're probably in, in a basketball's worth of air if you hold, it, hold your hands up and pretend you're holding a basketball. There are probably three or 4,000 fungal spores, probably 75 to 100,000 bacteria. So there are lots of living contents there all the time. Now, so air has mass, and you describe the difference between how airplanes use the mass of air and how a bird, such as a crane, uh, which is the bird that you write about, how a crane uses air to fly. Well, the unfortunate thing about airplanes is that they have to have fixed wings, except, of course, for helicopters. But leaving aside helicopters, a fixed-wing aircraft has to have its propulsion system, the propeller or the jet, separate from the system that keeps it in the air, separate from the wing, the aerodynamic system, the flow of air over a wing because of just a property of nature flows in such a way that it's possible for it to float as long as it has enough propulsion. So the propulsion is provided in a plane by an engine of some sort and then the wings are what keep it in the air and give it aerodynamic properties. In a bird, the two are combined. And in fact, most of the uh, the world of uh, of, of, of flying creatures, uh, the two are combined. So what gives propulsion 
also gives aerodynamic qualities. And the fact that they're so sensitive to the way they use these things means that they can do tremendous feats that we're quite incapable of. You're talking about birds now, and I know that you focus on cranes. Yeah, cranes are quite amazing birds. Um, They're amazing because they're a very large bird, but they're able to both flap and soar. And flapping flight is an amazing thing, but very, very energy expensive. So what cranes will typically do is fly up to a place, find some good thermals, and just like a glider pilot, they say, oh, good, thermals. And they'll ride the thermals up and then soar along as losing altitude all the time until they have to flap again, and then they'll begin to flap. But they're so much more maneuverable than we are in a plane. I mean, when a crane wants to stall, I mean, all of us on landing, uh, a pilot on landing, Occasionally you actually do want to stall, but you need to really carefully control your stall or you'll end up dead. But cranes, you know, stalling is the way they land. They will come down and they will just hold their wings. They kind of hold them up. If you imagine a maestro at the end of a symphony holding up his arms to bow and receive an acclamation, that's basically what cranes do to land. And it's beautiful to watch. But what it is is they're turning their wings above the critical angle of attack and it causes them to stall and they just settle to the ground. Now, air is all around us. And sometimes it's predictable. We know that it'll be cold or it'll be warm depending on the season. And sometimes we know that it'll snow. But when, Bill, is air the most unpredictable and confounds our attempts to monitor it? Well, I think in actual fact, it is pretty much all the time. We can know, as you say, the climate. We can know whether it's going to be warmer in one season, cooler in another. And we've gotten to the point now by understanding how the air moves around, by understanding the equations that govern it, that with very, very fine computers, and in fact, you know, all the the latest, fanciest computers are almost immediately turned to use them to make weather forecasts. When you have those maybe three days out, you can be relatively confident of predicting the weather, though you make mistakes even then. Why is it so hard to predict what air will do? It's, it's kind of wonderful. I must say, one of the things that most delighted me in this book was finding that out, was finding out that the guy who found it out was actually a mathematician. His name was Ed Lorenz. Who, uh, he, who found out what? He found out that uh, we will never be able to predict the air very far in advance, no matter how fancy the computers. And he didn't think that was the case. He thought we'd be able to do it. In fact, he was a great mathematician, and he had created the equations, and he was operating them, and they were working just fine, and he was making good predictions. And then he made a small mistake. He had to reprint some of the numbers, and so he changed them very slightly, less than a thousandth on each number. And he found that the predictions of those slightly, slightly different uh, numbers gave were totally different after a week. And he learned from this and spent the rest of his life studying the fact that a change that's so tiny it's imperceptible to uh, human beings, never mind measurable, so tiny it's imperceptible, can change the weather a week later completely. Is this that idea of when a butterfly flaps its wings, it creates a storm in the South Pacific? Yes, and that's an idea that was attributed to him, though he actually put it in terms of seagulls. He had been talking about, some guy had actually said to him in criticism, He said, well, if what you're saying is true, then a flap of a seagull's wings could change the weather in China. And he quotes that at the end of his paper where he talked about this and says, well, the controversy has still not been settled, but at the moment, the seagulls appear to be winning. Well, Bill, thank you so much for speaking to us. Well, you're welcome. I've really enjoyed it.
William Bryant Logan is the author of Air, the Restless Shaper of the World. And now I can't get my mind off that picture of what we breathe, including fat from food carts, depending on what food carts are in your area. Hello? Yeah, yeah. Whom am I talking to? Talking to uh, William. William? And and where are you located? Where's your truck? Um, My my truck, we are in Manhattan, New York. Right now, we are on uh, 18th Street and 5th Avenue. Fantastic. And and what are you serving today? What's your top seller today? Uh, Our top seller, the truck just sells burgers. Uh, Cheeseburgers and uh, Philly burgers. Okay, so stuff is coming off that grill. I mean, I, I assume, you know, some sort of steam, something you need to exhaust. Have you got an exhaast fan over it, or you just have a it's, vent? It's an exhaust hood. It's, it's just like the hood in restaurant that pulled uh, the smoke out right. uh, from the roof. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, William, finally, uh, you, you do you get any complaints that you're, you know, polluting the air with burger bits? No, not, not, not really. My friend, we, we are less pollution than the cars and the buses in, in this city. Now, because mostly for five or six hours, we're in one spot. So the only thing that's really uh, coming out of our zone is the smell of the burgers or the fries uh, or the bacon. Well, all right. Well, William, thank you very much. And by the way, if I were there, I'd ask you to hold the onions. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Next, we make space for space and end up making space for everyone by revealing just what space is really made of. Air and space, they make up the invisible in-between on Big Picture Science. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Well, another reason you do need air besides conveying burger bits to your nose is to hear stuff such as big picture science. Because air allows sound to travel from the source to your ears. But you don't always need air. If you've ever put your head down on a railway track, you might have heard a distant train. Now, in that case, the sounds are coming through the steel of the rail. Sound waves need air, steel, some other medium in which to travel. But light waves apparently do not. In space, no one can hear you scream, but they can see you scream. Well, they can see the wide open gape of your mouth, maybe. (laughs) That's because light waves can travel through seemingly empty space. Now, you know that because you can see the stars and their light is coming to you through the vacuum of space. But in the 19th century, people wondered what it was within that vacuum that allowed light to travel through it. Some called it the ether, but no one knew. It was a mystery. Tonight, the strange substance that allowed people to see even when they couldn't hear. A mysterious miasma that was everywhere like the fog that creeps into the crevices of a deserted city, 
along a river late at night. That's our subject tonight on unsolved, but later solved through careful study and experimentation, mysteries of science. Theater, let's begin with the spinner of this dark tale. Okay, I'm Bob Wagoner. Your full name, sir. I'm Robert V. We will call you Bob, Emeritus Professor at Stanford. My research is focused on theoretical astrophysics, gravitation, and cosmology. And cosmology was in its infancy in the 19th century. Victorian scientists were puzzled that light could move through apparently empty space. But was it truly empty? They felt that there must be some invisible substance there that allowed, in some cases, forces to be transmitted. And also electromagnetic radiation or light. And they called this strange substance, this invisible miasma, this elusive intermediary, the luminiferous ether. Luminiferous means able to transmit light. What was this omnipresent and unseen medium that could propagate light? Whence came this luminiferous ether? Whither did it go? We shall let this gentleman query our spinner of the tale. So there was this hypothesized medium, this something or other, that was out there in space, which allowed light waves and eventually radio waves when we developed radio to, to, to go right through this stuff. Now, were they troubled? Were, were scientists troubled? I don't imagine the public was troubled. I am troubled. But were scientists troubled by the fact that you could go into a lab and you could pump all the air and everything else you could think of out of a glass jar and yet you could still shine a flashlight beam through it? Troubling, I tell you. This luminiferous ether, troubling indeed. That's right. It was very troubling because it didn't affect the motion of objects. They knew that observationally as well. So it had no observable effects that they could find other than this ability to transmit light. And this medium, this ether, what were its properties? Was it a kind of butter? A kind of jam? Or was it... Some considered like jelly. Perhaps almond paste, a roux, or Vegemite. It's a lot of weird ideas. Okay, well, let's cut to the chase here. I mean, physicists toward the end of the 19th century were trying to measure some of the properties of this ether, this this substance, jelly-like or otherwise, that was out there. What were they trying to do? What kind of an experiment could they do? What kind of experiment indeed... Enter Michelson and Morley, physicists both, the year 1887. They constructed an interferometer, which is a set of mirrors at right angles to each other, and light bounces between those mirrors many times and then recombines, and they measure effectively how much time it takes the light to traverse one set of mirrors at right angles to the other set of mirrors of the same length. So they're essentially measuring the speed of light in those two directions. And then finally, they do it six months later when the Earth is moving in the opposite direction with respect to the ether, which was supposed to be fixed with respect to the fixed stars, that that is the sun. Okay, so the Earth is traveling in one direction at 30 kilometers a second in June and the opposite direction at 30 kilometers a second six months later. And you should see a corresponding a shift in the arrival times of the light. So this was an experiment to measure whether the ether exists, because if it did, the speed of light should be faster when you're moving with the ether than when you're moving against it. it the ether was analogous to, to water for the propagation of water waves. I mean, imagine dropping the pebbles off the bow of a boat as you're going against the current. 
the waves the pebbles make will seem to go slower away from you in the front of the boat because, well, you're catching up to them. Now turn the boat around and you're going with the current and you drop those pebbles off the front and now they go away from you faster. So it was the same deal for Michelson and Morley. The speed of light should have been different when the earth was moving one way through the ether and then the other way. Had the ether existed, the speeds would have been different. Different, I say. Perplexed? Ah. Another analogy, think about an airplane with constant airspeed, speed relative to the air, going against the wind, with the wind, and across the wind. Okay, you'd get a different speed relative to the earth, obviously, in those three cases. And that's the analogy people were thinking of. The airplane is the light traveling, okay? And the wind is the ether. And the result after carefully measuring this enigmatic luminiferous ether, this mysterious substance, they pulled off the mask to reveal. No evidence for the ether. So did they sort of throw up their hands and say, hey, look, uh, the ether, as far as we're concerned, doesn't exist? Well, something happened before that to essentially <laughs> make most people give up the ether theory, and that was Einstein's theory of special relativity. The speed of light is constant no matter how fast the light source is moving through space. Special relativity. Which posited a constant speed of light. So, all right. So the, the bottom line was you can take a flashlight, sit on the nose of a rocket going through space, shine it forward measure the speed of the beam, get on the tail of the rocket, shine it backwards, it's still the same speed. Right. And you can never catch up with a light beam no matter how fast you travel. Oh, my so. gosh. Okay, so, so the consequences were that light always travels at the same speed in a vacuum, and this requires relativity. That's the simplest way to do this. So special relativity won, okay, fairly quickly. And thus, the mystery of the ether was solved. It didn't exist. <laughs> and science showed the way. And that concludes tonight's episode of Unsolved, but later solved through careful study and experimentation, Mysteries of Science. Theater, farewell. Bob Wagner is not ether or about his history of science as emeritus professor of physics at Stanford University. If you travel straight up, 62 miles, 100 kilometers, you hit the boundary of space. Now, it's not a firm boundary, but anyone who makes it this high earns their astronaut wings. But even 62 miles is still tame as far as space goes. I mean, there's a lot more of it beyond that, don't you know? A NASA mission is making history by venturing into the uncharted beyond. The twin Voyager spacecraft launched in the late 1970s to study Jupiter, Saturn, and the outer solar system have no signs of stopping. Voyager just keeps going and going. Voyager 1 is 11 billion miles from Earth. Voyager 2, 9 billion miles. Both are poised to leave our solar system, making these spacecraft the first hunks of man-made hardware to do so, as well as becoming NASA's longest space mission, both in duration and in distance. Caltech physicist Ed Stone was the project scientist for the Voyager mission, and he still keeps tabs on these famous twin spacecraft. Well, they're exploring the bubble around the sun. The sun has a solar wind blowing its atmosphere, blows radially outward at about a million miles per hour. And so 
that bubble surrounds all the planets. In fact, the two Voyagers, even though not one of them is now 11 billion miles from Earth and the other is 9 billion miles from Earth, are still inside the bubble. But outside the bubble is interstellar space, and we're now very near the edge of that bubble, and I think Voyager 1 could actually leave the bubble for the first time and enter interstellar space, where it would be surrounded by matter that has come from other stars than our own sun. These are the first spacecraft, of course, to make it to this distance from the sun. Yes, that's correct. These are the, yes, they are, and they will be the first to reach interstellar space. Voyager is famous in the public's mind for carrying greeting cards on its uh, (laughs) exterior there. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about where the idea for these Voyager messages and what they are came from. We asked Carl Sagan to set up a committee to design some sort of message from Earth. The Pioneer spacecraft had plaques, but they decided, the committee decided, it would be nice to actually have a record. Now, this is an analog grooved record, but nevertheless, it has on it images of Earth. So it obviously has pictures of humans, but it also has pictures of nature. It has sounds of nature. It has music from around the world. It has many different languages, greetings in many different languages. So it's an attempt to send a picture if you like, of the planet, which in fact, for the first time, could reach out and leave its own solar system. Ed Stone is a physicist at Caltech. He's the former director of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is now managing the Curiosity rover on Mars, and he was the project scientist for the Voyager mission. And as he says, the spacecraft are poised to bolt our solar system for the freedom of interstellar space. But what does that mean? How do we know when we've reached the edge of our solar system? There's no sign that says last gas before interstellar space. Alex Filipenko may have the answers. He's an astronomer at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, that's right, Molly. Uh, There is no sign. However, the Voyagers are now traveling through a bubble created by the solar wind, a stream of charged particles and magnetic fields that's emanating from the sun. And this gas from the sun still dominates over what we call the interstellar medium, the gas between the stars. So we're really very much with the Voyagers still within the realm of the solar system. Is that what defines the solar system? All that gas streaming from our sun and the great big bubble that it creates? Yes, this bubble is called the heliosphere. It's the sphere around the sun and it's created by particles, magnetic fields coming from the sun. There are different boundaries within this bubble. For example, there's a place known as the termination shock where the solar wind goes from being supersonic, faster than the speed of sound, to subsonic, okay? And in fact, the Voyagers actually have already passed through that. Voyager 1 passed through the termination shock in around December of 2004, and Voyager 2 did it in August of 2007. They're now beyond the termination shock. They're in a place called the heliosheath right now. Okay, so this is the the region between the termination shock and this heliopause, which is the actual boundary of the heliosphere. And in this heliosheath, particle densities are higher because the wind has slowed down, and the temperatures are higher because there's been a shock that has heated the, the gas particles, and the magnetic fields are different from when they were just streaming from the sun. So it's definitely a discernible region from where the Voyagers used to be. We can tell we're in the heliosheath. Well, then what's the difference between interstellar space and space and deep space? Are these three different categories of space? 
Yes, well, interstellar space is the space between the stars where you just have particles that are just, you know, between the stars. They, they were produced either when the galaxy was forming or by being gently blown out by stars, like the solar wind is gently blowing out stuff. So it's just the collective stuff out there. But it varies a lot in its temperature and density. And by really deep space, I would say that's, you know, intergalactic. That's between the galaxies. What's in deep space? Is it empty if you were to travel into deep space and and look at the size of a a sugar cube of deep space? Would it just be empty? Yes, it would be lower density than in our galaxy. So lower than one atom per cubic centimeter, but not completely empty. So there's, there's particles of matter even between galaxies. So in a cluster of galaxies, you have, you have these galaxies, but between them you have some leftover gas as well and gas that's been blown out of galaxies. And even between clusters of galaxies, there's occasionally a particle of gas that's been blown out of galaxies. So there's normal atoms. There's also dark matter, stuff that we know is there because it exerts a gravitational influence. We can see its collective effect in gravitationally binding together stars in a galaxy, for example. But we haven't detected it through any visible light. So we call it dark matter both because we haven't seen it and because it's kind of mysterious. And then there's stuff called dark energy, which is spreading the universe apart in between the clusters of galaxies faster and faster with time. And that's not even particles. It's an energy. But the particle equivalent would be something like four hydrogen atoms per cubic meter. So that's a million times lower density than uh, the one particle per cubic centimeter in our galaxy. What I'm trying to get my head around is this concept of vacuum or a concept of something being empty, that you could just have an atom here, an atom here, and nothing in between. And then what is that nothing? Well, that's a very deep question. Yeah. So if you have just a few atoms here and there in a big room, you might think what's between them is zilch, nada, right? Absolutely nothing. We now know that the vacuum, space itself, is just teeming with activity. There's what's called quantum fluctuations occurring all the time. These are particles and antiparticles coming into existence out of nothing, existing for a very short time, and then disappearing, annihilating each other. And it could be that the dark energy that's accelerating the expansion of the universe is a manifestation of these vacuum fluctuations. We actually don't know that for sure yet, but that's one of the hypotheses. But to make the point more clearly, yes, between the atoms of of real stuff that we can imagine, because we're made out of real stuff, the vacuum is just teeming with activity with all these particles and antiparticles flitting into and out of existence all the time. Okay, so you mean here in this room, but also in space? Absolutely, everywhere both in this room, in your body, in the atoms within your body, within the atoms in your body, this is actually happening, and in what we would otherwise think of as completely empty space. There's all this activity. Finally, there's the phrase, in space, no one can hear you scream. Is it true that in space you couldn't hear anything? Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by the word hear. Space is not a complete vacuum. There are these particles, both in the heliosphere and in the interstellar medium. So in fact, pressure waves or sound waves can go through this space, and they do. When stars blow up, we see these shock waves, these pressure waves going through space. The problem is that the frequencies, as uh, discerned by our ears, would be very, very low. In fact, 
we would not hear them. We're not equipped to do that. And moreover, the number of particles hitting our eardrums would be so low as to not produce a signal. So there's a pressure wave out there, but for two reasons we can't hear it. The frequencies are too low and the rate at which particles would hit our eardrums is too low. So it sounds like if you're in trouble in space, you probably better not call out to your buddy. It's better to write a note or something like that. Help. That's right. Don't scream. Write a note that they can see or send a pulse of light that they can detect. But don't scream. Okay. How to save yourself in space. Thank you, Alex Filipenko. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Molly. Alex Filipenko is an award-winning professor of astronomy at the University of California in Berkeley. So earlier in the show, we heard that air is a busy place. There's a lot happening in just a cubic meter of air. It's what helps keep skydivers aloft and birds aloft and also makes us hungry by the wafting aromas of food. But space is a busy place, too. Well, it is. I mean, there's less going on in some sense because in space there's less stuff in a cubic meter of space, but there's a lot more cubic meters, so it adds up to something important. Thanks to our production staff, they're not spacey, they're sometimes full of hot air. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. And thanks this week also to Jennifer Welsh, editor of Business Insider's new science section. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the invisible in-between. And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, Big Picture Science, become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like air, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. 